This podcast is presented by Convergence, a magazine for radical insights. Of all the types of debt I've been in, I've managed to avoid medical debt, knock on wood. I've only really had small patches of time without health insurance my entire life. The health insurance I had was often crappy, but even when I got into a terrible car accident years ago, a big percentage of my bills were just covered by insurance. I know I'm lucky. Medical debt is such a serious piece of the debt picture in this country. It's consistently the top cause of bankruptcy, only occasionally falling second to job loss, although, as you can imagine, the two are related. In a country with such expensive health care and basically no medical safety net, it makes sense. But since it wasn't in my personal experience, I decided to go on social media and post. I posted, hey, if you're black and you've dealt with over 25000 in medical debt, please fill out this form and let me know. I posted this and then forgot about it for about an hour while I was in a meeting. When I came back and sat at my desk, again, just one hour later, 200 people had filled out the form, 500 people had shared it. So I guess this problem is pretty huge. Welcome to episode five of Indebted, a podcast about debt and race in America. I'm your host, Maurice B.P. Weeks, a lifelong economic and racial justice organizer. Each episode, we tackle a different aspect of debt, exploring how it works and why it spells bad news for black people and our entire economy. In this episode, we're talking about medical debt, the often unplanned and unavoidable debt that 85%, yes, 85% of all people with credit reports have. Let's get into it. Okay, so if you remember our first episode, I talked about a medical bill that I got. Well, really, my son Charlie got for his own birth. So we luckily didn't have to pay that outrageous bill because we had health insurance. But that is not the case for many, many people, especially black people in this country. I took a look at a report from the Kaiser Family Foundation They're not affiliated with the hospital system, don't worry. And the report featured a heat map of where medical debt is based throughout the country. We'll link it in the show notes. The map shows light red for areas with less medical debt and dark red for areas with more debt. You immediately notice that one part of the country is mostly deep red, the southeast. So why is that significant? Well, Even with the Great Migration, the term for the multi-million black person exodus from southeast to places with promises of less racism or better economic opportunity, nearly 60% of the U.S. black population currently lives in the south. If you rank the states by black population percentage, Mississippi, Louisiana, Georgia, Alabama, South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia, Tennessee, Florida, Arkansas... They're all in the Southeast and all in the top 15 of black percentage. Most of those states currently and really perennially also have Republican governors. So when Medicaid expanded, opening up the eligibility for the popular government subsidized health care program to low-income folks, most of those states decided not to voluntarily enroll because of blah, 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 Obamacare, don't tread on me, socialism, this is the Tea Party, yada, yada. I mean, he's raising the taxes like crazy, and we need freedom. We didn't vote for this health care that he planned. No mama, no mama. 
mama. No more mama. So that means a majority of the black population's access to health care is being legislated by wealthy white Republicans in the South. It's a pretty targeted attack of black folks who are more likely to be eligible and also need programs like Medicaid. And it's one without a quick political solution. Okay, so one of my very good friends has a ton of medical debt and also happens to be an organizer and campaigner who thinks about debt and race a bunch, just like me. And she lives in the South. So I thought she'd be the perfect person to go a little deeper on this issue, and she graciously agreed. My name's Angela Peoples. I am a mother. I'm a Black queer woman. I'm a cultural and narrative strategist, and I live in South Florida. And I'm in debt. <laughs> awesome. It's so great to talk to you, Angela, always. Um, and thank you for chatting. I wanted to talk to someone who like gets organizing, understands the issue of debt at uh, organizing and campaigning level, but also, like me, is just in debt and specifically in medical debt. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what your medical debt story is at the moment? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, my medical debt story is, it, it isn't just, it isn't about one procedure or one trip to the hospital or one, you know, uh, doctor's appointment or one illness, whatever that happened to me. It's actually about just like the, sh the shit that happens with life. My parents, especially my mom, is very big on like, you need health insurance, you need health insurance, you need health insurance. And like, we had slash have health insurance and also have medical debt. Like, I don't know if the, you know, the, the, the two are not, the, the math isn't all the way mathing there. Like if you, this sort of idea is that you have health insurance, so you don't go into like catastrophic medical debt. And yet here we all are. My medical debt looks like a couple of, for a couple of things. One, it's in between coverage, right? And so whether that's in between jobs, like that, that had coverage, or for the last like five to seven years, I've been in like a contractor basically or independently employed. And so sometimes I didn't have insurance. Um, and that was fine because excuse me, I was a healthy 20 something and it was just me and I didn't have, you know, children or whatever. So I was like, yeah, sure, I'll just tack on that. If I have to go to the hospital to, if I have a, like a UTI or I have to get, you know, I have a sinus infection or whatever and I just got to go to urgent care, I'll just take care of it. Or, or you know, it, it's, it's, it's kind of like what I was just saying that you have coverage, but it's not covering the, it's not um, covering the cost of the care. And then there's this other thing that happens where it's just like, the confusion of the medical industry or the healthcare system, like it boggles my mind that you can like go to a hospital, get services and be like, well, what's the cost? They're like, we'll bill you later. Don't worry <laughs> about it. And then like, <laughs> yeah. what's later? Like where? <laughs> and then later is like right. something that you get in the mail, a bill that you get in the mail that maybe comes to your old address, you know, because for, you know, a lot of people move frequently or so it goes to your old address or you you see you get it, but you don't see it. And then all of a sudden, like three months later, you get a call from some random law firm. Your X-ray that you got for your knee sprain is 
going into collections. Like to me, my medical debt story is about like the shit that happens because we're living our lives the way that in this capitalist system, but also just in the way that I, I think that like happens in your when you're growing, when you're evolving, when you're in your mid career, when you're just in different stages of your life. And I don't think that our systems that are more profit driven allow are aligned with or responsive to those shifts. You know, um, my most recent experience with medical debt is and I, I also have family that 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 work in medicine. So like I, I know a little bit too much about how billing happens and why what they bill for, why and all of that, those things. <clears throat> and so. I know the questions to ask, you know, and so I took my mm -hmm. baby who was like five or six months at the time. Everybody in our house was sick. She was sick and like not getting better. So I was like, let's just go to the ER to make sure that it's not something that needs more attention. And of course it wasn't like, you know, babies get the flu or, or whatever. But I went, we went to the ER. Somebody came in to see us, and this was in between insurance. We, we were on the exchange for a while, and then I was getting a job, and so, but the insurance hadn't kicked in. And so I was like, we'll just pay out of pocket. I had already planned to do that. And so they come, the, the, the billing person comes in, and I'm like, okay, well, we're going to, you know, just whatever it is, we'll just pay out of pocket. He's like, oh, okay, well, it's like $600 or something. And I was like, okay, cool. Let's just take care of that. And then he's like, well, did you get any other like services, x-rays, blood work? And I was like, no, we literally just saw the doctor for like five minutes. And then and now we're about to leave. We would like to leave now. And they're like, OK, cool. And then <laughs> I'm getting these calls first from like a Medicaid person that's like, hey, do you have other insurance? If not, we can qualify you for Medicaid to cover this $1,200 bill you had. I said, $1,200 bill? Where did that come from? Mm -hmm. Oh, well, you mm -hmm. took your baby to the ER, blah, blah, blah. I was like, well, we, I paid for that out of pocket and like we didn't do anything. Like the doctor came and then she and talked to us and then she left. Like, is it $1,200 to see a doctor? To walk into the ER to see a doctor? Like, I, that's confusing to me. So my experience right now is that I'm actually literally going back and forth. And sometimes I just like, you don't have the receipts, so call me back when you have the receipts. Like, I know that you don't have the, I know you don't have the information that proves that this is my debt or what it's behind. All of the things that make it so that I don't actually have to pay this until you can prove that it's real and that you own it. I'm asking all of those questions and telling them, call me back when you have that information. But it just, it's just so glaring to me that like, it's not even a scam. It's like, it's something worse than whatever a scam is. Because if I'm not somebody that has this awareness, that has this information that's like, no, you cannot, I'm not liable for this. It's one, especially if you can't tell me what I'm being charged for. And two, I already have the receipt to say that I paid for what I, what I, the, the cost, like stop it. Um, but it's it's just really the thing that I often think about is like the emotional toll of it all, you know, like on top of the work that it takes to be on the phone, to track your receipts. Hell, the experience of going to the ER in the first place, it's yeah. not good. It's not a it's not a pleasant experience, um, especially down here in South Florida. It's not a pleasant experience going to the ER and then on the back end of that, you have to, like, be some, like, finance and debt, like, expert. Get out of here. Right. 
Yeah, you you mentioned South Florida, and you know, I I just know that most of the black people in this country live in the South, and um, we talk about sort of the the specific impacts of of debt practices on black folks all the time on the show, and I'm I'm wondering how you see sort of the medical debt system acting differently for black folks, for black women, for black queer folks, for black trans folks, like, um, yeah. I think that the, the difference to me is twofold. One, there's an experience that I have where a lot of the people that work in the industry to collect debt or to collect, like, that are the people that you interact with in the medical field, particularly when it comes to the financing side of it, are actually people of color. They're black women, um, at least in my experience. And so there's something that's a little bit like insidious about that. That's sort of like, it kind of adds to the, the shame. It adds to the like sense of like individual responsibility when it's like, actually, this is not a, we're, we should not be having this conversation of, you know, black a woman who is the account manager for whatever law firm that owns this debt, that quote unquote owns this debt. And me, the person who like is responsible for the debt, like it should not be this individual, but it really puts it on me and on this other person to like be having this conversation when the source of it, it doesn't really have a whole lot to do with us, if that makes sense. And so to me, I think that there's something that's like um, particularly harmful and complicating of this conversation because you're frustrated. You're like, I don't think I owe this or I shouldn't owe this or I do owe this and I I had to go to the hospital. I mean, like, imagine the, ex- the experience that people have when they're like, should I go to the, should I deal with this cough that my baby has had for 10 days? Should I go to the ER to make sure that they're, they're, they don't have pneumonia? Or should I risk having to take on thousand, two thousand, five thousand, however many much dollars in debt and incur that experience that's dehumanizing to me of saying, you owe this. Why aren't you paying this? When are you going to pay this? How much are you going to put down on this? You know, and they use these tactics that are just so gross. Like, you know, you're the one that decided to do this and like you're responsible. You need to like it just really using people that are in your community from your community to have those conversations, I think is a particularly disgusting part of the debtor's experience, particularly in the context of healthcare. Like I did not, I actually had both of my children at home. Part, one of the reasons why I wanted to have my second baby at home is because even though I was willing to, even though I had to pay additional costs out of pocket with the midwife and the birth center and all of those things, at least I knew what it was going to, what was going to be in it. I knew how much it was going to cost. I knew what they were offering me and I knew what each of those items cost versus like going to the hospital. You kind of have no idea. They're like, Oh yeah, well there, these pants cost um, $39 and you need them because you're bleeding. So sorry, like put on the $39 pants. So there's the, the relational aspect of it, but then there's, there's also the shame that I just, I, I think that is, I don't know that enough research is being done and maybe your brilliant work is is exploring this, Maurice, but there is something, there's a cost. There's like, there is a definitely a financial, a time cost 
to the amount of time that I have to spend on the phone, you know, discovering which hospital, which doctor owns what thing. And and then, oh, also the hospital bills this way, but the doctors bill at the hospital bill this other way. So you got to talk to these other people while also because you thought you paid the hospital, but you didn't pay the doctors who work at the hospital. So you got to talk to the doctors that work at the hospital billing company like there's a cost to that. There's a time cost to it and there's an emotional cost. Like it takes something out of my body because of how I've been socialized as a woman, as a black person, as a queer person, as a quote unquote leader, as someone who was raised to be respectful and respectable and respect the rule of law and all of that nonsense. Like there is something visceral in me that's like, I owe this thing. Oh my God. They're, they're coming for me, you know, yeah. collection notice. If you've never received a collect a letter in the mail that says collection or attempt to collect, like it creates a very visceral reaction in your body and chills up the spine for sure. Yes. Every chills time. up the spine, yeah. your stomach drops. You're like, Oh, and, and if you add on top of that, again, in the context of medical debt and healthcare, that is that that causes stress in your body that raises your blood pressure, increases your risk of stroke, increases your risk. It, it, it triggers if you have heart disease in your in your family, it can trigger those things. So now we're back and now we're in a cycle. Right now we're in a situation where not only am I in debt and now this debt is causing me stress, is causing me harm. And now I got to take my ass back to the doctors because yeah, of this stress. Yeah. That I'm getting from the medical, the the bills, the debt, all of that. I just think that there's a there's something just very very um, sinister about it. Okay, so you're you're like one of the organizers I respect the most in the world and Thanks. think are the most brilliant. So I'm gonna ask you the impossible question of how we fix this. Mm. How do we fix this? I think the way that we, we have to nationalize healthcare, and, and I think that that's a pretty, it's a, it's a simplistic answer with very complicated like roots, you know? I was a part of one of many attempts to reform the student debt industry, and that was also a part of the major healthcare bill. I mean, the, the thing that I remember the most about that is that it wasn't, it took a lot of work to get those bills passed into law. And they're really good ideas like that were at the root of those bills. But the thing that made those ideas not so great in terms of execution and implementation is the instinct to like sort of like water it down or make it more complicated in order to infuse profit into the, 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 mm -hmm. the process. Right. You know, like, well, we can't just make there be one student debt company because what about all the other companies and their jobs in Pennsylvania? And like, they matter so much. Like what about Senator blah, blah, blah's constituents? Aren't they going to need, you know, I say that to say like, yes, we need to nationalize healthcare, but we also need to do it in a way that is like very strictly and specifically intended to cut the cost complete, like in, in like very, very significant ways. Like if we're trying to nationalize healthcare in a way that keeps 
people employed and keeps companies functioning, where it don't do it. Just forget it. Don't do it at all. Just scrap the whole thing because it's going to just yeah. make it more complicated. I think if we can make that make accessing care less complicated and make it um, um, focus a lot more on the preventative care, then actually healthcare probably won't cost as much. Like the thing I was saying earlier, like there's literally, and I, I, I this sounds like a joke, but it's not. There is a, I'm, I'm being told that there's one company to pay to walk into the hospital. And then there's yeah. another different separate company to pay to see a doctor that's inside the hospital. Right, right. Like, yeah. I don't what what how? Of like, course I, no one understands that because that makes absolutely that no sense. It makes no sense. sense. Why? So like simplifying it for sure. And then I think that on the organizing side and this is where I think this is less about like organizing people to take action and more about like organizing people to like unlearn white supremacy and like capitalism ideas is like we have to work on unlearning the shame and the like individual responsibility for our own health care like for the for our care in the same way that like yes I, I don't I think that we need to like shift in how we think about who's responsible for the children of this country and like our collective versus our individual responsibility on that. I think the same thing is true for our healthcare, right? Like do we, or do we not need people to work in this economy? Right. Yeah. It sounds like, I think we yeah. do. Yeah. Well, if we need people that are healthy to work, wouldn't it make sense that we make it easier for people to get or stay healthy? I'm just saying this is like one plus one is two, guys. Like, so mm -hmm, I think that there's mm -hmm. a bit of like cultural shifts that we need to make as a people, as a as a society to move away from like it's me and my responsibility to take care of my health care and my family. And actually, like we need all of us to have health care. We need all of us to have our children that are well. We need our elderly to be well, because otherwise it creates all of these other consequences that are not good, that are expensive, that are inhumane. It's very inhumane. Yeah. Well, I so appreciate chatting with you. And I honestly could have had you on for any episode because this is really in your wheelhouse. Thank you so much for chatting with me as always. And thank you for just being a, a person that I always call for advice, whether it's on organizing or how to put children to bed. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for having me. Thank you for all of the incredible work that you're doing, Maurice. I, I really appreciate you and I admire you very, very much. Hi, this is Caden, the publisher of Convergence Magazine. There are a lot of places that you can put your hard-earned money in support of our movements, but if you're enjoying this show, I hope you'll consider subscribing to Convergence on Patreon. We're a small, independent operation and rely heavily on our readers and listeners like you to support our work. You can join us at patreon.com slash convergencemag. Subscriptions are pay what you can, but at 10 bucks a month, you'll get goodies as well as knowing you're helping to build a better media system one that supports people's movements and fights fascism. And if you can't afford it right now, don't worry. All our shows will be free for you to enjoy. You can also help by leaving us a positive review or sharing this episode with a comrade. Thank you so much for listening.
As we said earlier, there are so many black people with medical debt, so Angela's not alone. And I've heard stories from my sister, who's a doctor, about how expensive necessary medical treatment can be for black folks. We're not talking about voluntary cosmetic surgeries here, just basic care. One of my sister's coworkers is a historian in addition to being a doctor and has a new book titled Your Money or Your Life, Debt Collection and American Medicine, coming out pretty soon. So I decided to chat with him as well to get a little bit more of why we're in this predicament. Yeah. Hey, my name's Luke Messick. I'm an emergency physician and historian at uh, Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston and Harvard Medical School. Awesome. Uh, so great to have you on, Luke. Always good to talk to someone from uh, Brigham and Harvard, where my sister is a is a doctor as well. So uh, very nice to meet you. Very nice to chat with you. Yeah, really great to be here. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. So can you talk uh, about like your medical practice, like what you specialize in and what that looks like? Yeah, I'm an emergency physician, so I work in the ER. I work at a few different hospitals now. I finished my training a couple of years ago, uh, but you know, we, we are the emergency specialists. So if you have something happen to you unexpectedly, day or night, 24-7, 365 days a year, uh, we are your first point of contact when you come into, come into the hospital. And amazingly, also a historian is focused on medical medical debt. So I want to, yeah, I want to start maybe on medical debt by asking. So we know that the, it's a it's a monster. It's uh, you know on so many people's credit reports. Like we know just from the discourse about medical debt, it's just a major major thing. But I'm wondering if, from your perspective, you can give like a scale of how big this problem truly is. It's massive. It's more than I could have possibly imagined. And I think we've only started to get really a sense of the scope and scale of the problem in the last few years due to some great investigative journalists and uh, academic work. But by most recent estimates, 100 million Americans hold medical debt in some form. And there's many ways to determine, you know, what the scale of medical debt is. There was a paper that came out a couple of years ago saying it was about $80 billion based on uh, some estimates. You know, some some include only medical debt in collections on credit reports. Mm. Some try to cast their net a bit broader. But it is uh, it is a huge problem that affects a, a large number uh, of Americans. And as you can imagine, it uh, falls along uh, steep gradients of class, race, and gender. Um, medical debt is more commonly held by women than men. It's more commonly held by black and Latino households than white households. And it's much more commonly held by uh, low-income households. 79% of medical debt is held by households with zero or negative net worth. So it's uh, it's an unequally burdened problem. That is really, really wild. Uh, That's a wild statistic there. Um, Yeah. I, I want to zero in on on some of those disparities. So, you know, throughout this series, um, we've talked about student debt. We've talked about payday lending. We've talked about credit scores throughout this podcast. And each one of those, it seems like, as you're saying, black people end up with the short end of the stick. So it sounds like that's true here. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about why that's true. Yeah. I mean, your your previous guests have all stressed the importance of history, and that's going to be key here. But just to give you a sense of the current scope of the problem, uh, medical debt in uh, collections um, 
flicks about 28% of black households, 17% of white households. Uh, Hispanics are somewhere in the middle. That, that's, that, that's the term used in the survey literature that I was mm-hmm. looking at. But it's uh, Latinx households is 22%. So it's, um, it is very unequally held. And yeah, I mean, history is going to be key here because a lot of medical debt actually falls geographically too. You'll notice that uh, a great heat map of it which was published in JAMA last year, shows that the Southeast United States just has massive, massive amounts of medical debt. Some of the highest uh, proportions of households with medical debt lie in in the American South and the states of the former Confederacy, which also happen to be the states that have had histories of disinvestment in healthcare and and social protection. Uh, Some of the least generous Medicaid programs, the ones that are hardest to get into and that kick people off the quickest, and those states that have refused to expand Medicaid in line with the Affordable Care Act. So low-income folks living in those areas who need access to care are just burdened with massive amounts of debt and then find themselves at the mercy of collectors thereafter. Right. And for especially in the Southeast, where the majority of the black population is low income, is just basically a substitute for black, basically. Yeah, I mean, this is this is a problem that afflicts it. You know, I, I shouldn't say it afflicts black people um, uh, exclusively. Like this is a this is a national problem of, of sure. tremendous scope. But yeah, you're completely right that the 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 disparities are are completely real, and they just they run so deep. It's it's sometimes hard to you know, pin down any singular cause for them. But but there was a recent study that came out of Baltimore showing that, you know, black people were much less likely to have applied for charity care even when they were eligible for wow. it. Uh, the, the surveyors uh, suggested that maybe they weren't even being told about it mm-hmm. in disparate mm-hmm. rates. So there's, you know, this is a really complex and manifold problem, but it definitely affects black uh, patients in ways that it doesn't affect others. And how do you see that playing out like, in your day-to-day, like, medical practice, does that does that play out? Like, uh, you work in emergency rooms, you see folks who are coming in at some of their worst moments, I would imagine. Are they, do you see folks who are making decisions about their care or their health based on cost and potential debt? Or is, and is that something that you all talk about or think about? My patients are the ones who taught me about this. I mean, I... Yeah. I, I'd always known that you know we we have a horribly unequal healthcare system and one that um, you know preys on the poor um, and minoritized in particular. But you know it was really when my patients started talking to me about why they couldn't do what I was suggesting that they do uh, that that it really hit me. I mean I had patients saying they you know they came in with uh, complications of diabetes, losing limbs, going to the ICU because they couldn't afford their insulin. I had patients who told me that they really couldn't stay overnight, even though that was the recommendation for their, you know, maybe heart attack that they were having because they just didn't want to see wow. that bill later on. Yeah, I saw patients, I, I remember one particular patient who came in uh, with a, a tremendously painful fungating mass uh, that she'd seen grow on her body for the last six months and endured uh, alone in pain because she knew that if she came in, she risked leaving her family with a tremendous burden. So by the time she came in, she all she wanted was morphine. Oh, my Lord. So those are the folks who taught me that there was a problem going on and that, you know, I really needed to understand this a lot better. 
Wow, that is really heavy, and I'm just imagining, you know, as as a as a doctor, you're just seeing that all of these folks' health outcomes are just so 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 much worse because of this, you know, what is an entirely avoidable thing. I mean, like talk about preventative care. This is like beyond that. Folks are just like declining treatment because of of this. Yeah, and we're really the last line of defense. You know, where folks coming into the ED are often coming in because the primary care system hasn't hasn't worked for them, often because they couldn't afford to get care to begin with. So, you know, we're seeing kind of the ravages of the system as uh, you know, as they're manifested in like late stage disease. Uh, yeah. so yeah, it's it's absolutely true that the cost of care and the fear of debt keeps people from coming in on time. Uh, or in a timely fashion where we have the best chance of intervening on their illness. You know, there's so many things in emergency medicine or in medicine in general where, you know, time is brain for a stroke or time is heart for a heart attack. So, uh, but we know that uh, black patients tend to delay presenting for a heart attack, that they come in later. We know that patients who have debts or who face even minimal charges at the point of care are much less likely to access preventative services, are much less likely to get uh, diagnosed and treated for preventable conditions, and that those uh, delays lead to uh, differences in mortality, that they lead to worse, you know, worse outcomes yeah. for patients. So, so yeah, this is, this, is a, this is a medical problem. It's not just a finance problem. It is a problem right. that is embodied and like really does damage to our bodies. Right, right, right. Can we talk about who some of the the bad actors are here? I mean, like the folks who are like making money off of off of this. I mean, you mentioned a lot of these bills are going to collections, and that's how they manifest themselves on folks' credit reports. And I know collections agencies are are making a buck there. Who are who are who are the bad guys? Like, trace us yeah. up the food chain here. Yeah, absolutely. So, okay, say you go into the hospital, you go, you go, you get care, you leave, you're doing okay. And then somewhere between uh, two and six months after your hospital stay, if you haven't paid your bill, it might start going to collections. And then after six months, really, like, it's really open season. A lot of things can happen to you if you still haven't paid that bill. Maybe you don't think you owe it. Maybe it's something you can't afford. But at that point, the landscape of what's called extraordinary collection actions opens up. And you can have your debt sold to a third party. You could be taken to court. Uh, you could have your property, like your bank account, seized. Mm-hmm. You could have your home foreclosed on. If you don't show up for the hearings to decide how much of your property to take, you could be arrested. And all these things are happening to people around the country today. And a lot of the kind of effector arms of that collection is being done by collection agencies. These are third right. parties that hospitals will hire to do the collection work for them. And some of them are small agencies, you know, kind of fly-by-night operations. But the ones that are making the lion's share of the revenue are, are large, large operations. And I go into some of them in the book, but like to give you an example, one of the largest um, over the period that I covered, kind of the 1980s to, to the present, was called NCO Financial, which mm-hmm. is uh, a company started in a garage in Philadelphia, eventually, uh, right outside Philadelphia, that was initially just devoted to kind of small scale operations, you know, collecting debts around the Philadelphia area, but grew into an operation with call centers around the world 
and with 9,000 collectors working for it, 2,000 of whom were devoted to the collection of medical debt. That operation was eventually kind of broken up and sold, and the medical debt portion of it was sold to a gentleman named uh, Tom Gores, who I, I understand oh, you're from yeah. you're from Michigan. So this is the this is the <laughs> owner Tom Gores, well owner of the Detroit Pistons. We will talk about Tom Gores uh, at another point in this podcast as well. <laughs> yes, yeah. So so you know this is this is getting to some of the wealthiest people in the world. Tom Gores is by Forbes account, you know, 424th on the list of the wealthiest people in the world, just behind like Johnny Dorsey and other mm-hmm. folks like that. So so this is an operation that usually involves the work of poor people trying to collect from other poor people. I mean, collectors themselves, a recent survey found, made less than the median wage, you know, the, the, about 10 years ago, it was $11 an hour, some of which uh, comes in the form of, you know, incentives if they're able to collect more. But these are not rich folks who are calling you on the phone, but they are working for some very wealthy people. Right. So I, I, I want to be careful with this next question because I, I don't want to take any of the blame away from collections agencies, which are, are like you're saying, just really wealthy and horrible folks <laughs> doing a horrible thing. And I'm just like imagining a hospital system knowingly sending some of these charges to a collections agencies where, I mean, they know as well as I know that the collections process might end up with someone losing their home. And they know as well as I know that losing your home is probably not great for your health. And I guess I'm just having trouble seeing how hospitals themselves many of which have a, a great deal amount of money themselves, can really justify sending, like contracting with companies like NCO Financial or sending to other collections agencies. And maybe I'm missing something about how, you know, what, how this makes sense for them in some way. Yeah, it's a great question. And it's one that I struggled with for a long time. Most hospitals in the United States are, are nonprofit institutions that, you know, don't, don't pay taxes by virtue of the work that they do for the community benefit. And so I, I'd always assumed that they would be some of the least likely institutions to hire debt collectors, sell yeah. their debt, a great, uh, engage in these aggressive collection actions. But they're not. They're some of the most likely. I think part of it has to do with the fact that over time, over the course of really since the 19th century and progressively uh, more and more in the later part of the 20th century, physicians and caring professionals really became more and more divorced from the work of collecting uh, patients' debts. I mean, in the, 1900, in the 19th century, you see physicians writing in medical journals complaining that they presented these bills to their patients. The patients say they can't pay. You know, the crop hasn't come in this year. They're, another child got sick. They really can't afford it. And it's their job to make the decision about what to do with that. Are they going to forgive mm. the debt? Are they going to accept something in kind? Are they going to sever the relationship? And it was, it, it was a personal relationship that was very fraught, but but intensely personal. Over time, th- that all got outsourced. And so now most of us, physicians, nurses, like a, a lot of us work for these large corporations. And the idea of the independent professional coming to visit you at home is, you know, something you might see on old TV shows, but it's right. not something that most of us have day-to-day 
you know, it's not our day-to-day reality. So that's, I think that's part of it that a lot of, and then, and then as a result, the collection work is done by professionals who really aren't involved in clinical care. It's no longer a personal relationship. And for them, you know, their priority is, is, you know, keeping the doors open and in some cases padding the bottom line to allow for expansion and other priorities. So, you know, if they can see another way to collect on patients who are notoriously difficult to collect from, the self-pay, as they call them, patients, patients who are uninsured or underinsured, uh, then they'll take it. And the sales pitches from debt collectors can be pretty convincing for those folks. I mean, they're they're promising them that they're going to take this headache off their hands, essentially. I mean, people who work in collection offices, they're used to working to try to collect from insurance companies. They are in this morass of paperwork and this bureaucratic battles with insurance to try to get their reimbursements. They don't want to generally be calling individual patients and telling them to pay up. And so someone's knocking at the door saying, we can get you your money, in some cases guaranteed if you sell it to us, and you don't even have to do a thing. Just sell it to us. Don't even worry about it. Like that's a, that's a proposition that was too good for some folks to pass up. That's super helpful. Yeah. So I want to, so there's actually been some recent news about, uh, you know, medical collections, medical debt on credit reports. I know that in April of this year, the CFPB got rid of, uh, collections that are under $500 on, on credit reports, um, or at least the, maybe they released a rule that they were that were going to do that. I'm not sure it's been completed for every person. I'm wondering if this is, do you see that as kind of a step in the right direction, or is this just a distraction and we're not seeing the forest for the trees here and 500 bucks is probably a small percentage of medical debt amounts, I would assume? I think it's a, it is a good thing. It's, a, it's an un, undoubtedly a good thing. It is not nearly enough, but yeah. I, you know, you got to give credit where credit is due. And the CFPB, man, that, thank God for that agency, man. They, they put out these great reports. And one Absolutely. of them they p- put out a few years ago basically proved that even if you believe in the credit system, the credit agencies and the work that they do, uh, the, the medical debts on those reports are not predictive of patient of people's general credit worthiness of the their ability to pay back uh, debts in general. Yeah. These these aren't. I mean, you know, you've you've covered different forms of consumer debts and the the ways that they're extremely uh, unjust and problematic. But this one in particular is probably the most unpredictable. I mean, who, sure. how yeah. you know. Even if you're the most invested in an ethos of personal responsibility, you really can't say that medical debt is a result of personal irresponsibility, that someone should be able to control right. every instance of it. Right. So so it makes sense that those debts wouldn't necessarily correlate with someone's ability to pay back other forms of debt. So so once the CFPB put out that report, then you know the credit agencies did, after facing some pressure, you know, announce together that they were going to take off some of those debts and since then, there's been a move by the Biden administration to remove even more of those debts from credit reports. And so it is is—it is a good thing. Uh, but I will say that there's many other forms of aggressive collection actions that uh, that still are taken against patients every day. I mean, they're 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 taken to court. They're sued. Their uh, their bank accounts are seized. Their homes are seized. Uh, and so you know, until we really get at the whole panoply of consequences that people face for the crime of falling sick. Then we're yeah. really not doing enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, just from I can even remember from readings in college that you know there's a well documented distrust of 
uh, medical establishments from black people, and you can pretty much directly trace that back to slavery and other things that stem from slavery. And I'm, I'm, it, it seems like to me, this disparate medical debt impact would have a continued adverse effect on, on black folks' trust of the medical establishment or, or their willingness to seek care. Uh, we kind of touched on that a little bit. And I'm, I'm just wondering if there's, can, is there something we can do in this arena that could help reestablish some, some trust in medicine so that folks are, um, you know, more likely to go to doctors when they're, they're sick. Um, like, is this, is this an area that is making that disparity grow? And if so, how do we repair it? Yes, it is absolutely making that disparity grow. It's, it's interesting that the health disparities literature, it's great. It, it has had tremendous strides in the last few decades. Uh, but it largely focuses on the experience of uh, minoritized patients within the hospital system or within the healthcare system, and it's shown that you know they're less likely to have their uh, symptoms taken seriously, that they're more likely to be right. restrained if they're in distress, that they're uh, less likely to be admitted to specialist services for specialist problems. I mean, there, there's a lot of great literature, but relatively little of it focuses on what's now being called uh, by a lot of oncologists who study this problem, financial toxicity, the mm. toxic effects of uh, financial debt on patient outcomes. And I think we could do a lot more to study it and to study it particularly in minoritized populations. That's something I'm really interested in in carrying on in the future. I think there's like a, there's the problem of, I think what one can call medical redlining, you know, like taking yeah. from the redlining literature that show, to show that, that this really has kept patients, black patients in particular, out of the hospital in a, uh, or from pre presenting to the hospital in a timely fashion for emergent problems. And what can we do to, to alleviate this problem or to get rid of the problem? I mean, single-payer healthcare is really the ultimate answer. It's, it's yeah. eliminating charges at the point of care is the evidence-based way to prevent people from, uh, from being denied that care. So that is, that is really like our North Star. But in the meantime, there are plenty of things that can be done. I'll point to one in particular. Uh, that's been taken up by a lot of advocates, which is presumptive eligibility. There's, interestingly enough, software produced by credit rating agencies that is used not to determine someone's eligibility for a loan, but to determine whether they are likely to qualify for financial assistance. Oh, yeah. So Experian puts out one of these products and uh, you know, all these all these... Uh, credit rating agencies do the same. It's It tells the hospital at the point of care, is this patient likely to have an income low enough such that we don't have to send them a bill? We can just say that they qualify for our own particular income cutoff for financial assistance. And hospitals that have done this have found that it's been tremendously helpful to them in that they're not dealing with mountains of paperwork anymore. And it's yeah. tremendously helpful to the patients because instead of getting bills for months, uh, sometimes erroneously, they are told and given the uh, assurance as they walk in the door that they will not be made to pay. I really like this this term of financial toxicity. I mean, maybe like is the wrong word, but I think it's I find it a useful term sort of identifying this thing that in medicine, you can then, you know, use your 
normal rubric of here's a here's a, here's here's a thing. Let's figure out how to solve it. And one of the ways to solve it is using this tool you're talking about. Um, and obviously, the long term cure is single payer, universal single payer healthcare for the country. Yeah, it's also a way to help us understand our own responsibility and role in this problem. I think. Yeah. For a lot of us, you know, learning the medicine is is enough of a challenge and being able to, you know, go to work every day and trying circumstances, particularly over the last few years, has been a challenge. And so to add to physicians' plate or nurses' plates, you know, oh, you're also responsible for, you know, burying your patients in mountains of debt and legal trouble. That can be a hard pill to swallow. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's important that we lay out ways that they can be part of the solution and not the problem and not, you know, uh, lay at their feet another societal ill that they really have no desire to be a part of. So, you know, this is our, this, but this is our bailiwick. This is our problem. These are our institutions and our patients are counting on us to look after them and to do, do right by them. And so we should be, you know, on the side of the, uh, of the patient, you know, we have to decide if we're on the side of the predator or the prey. And in this case, I think we, we have to side with the patient. Yeah. Yeah. I'm wondering if you could talk about what are what are some hopeful things that are happening in this arena. I mean, we've we've talked about the bad actors, we've talked about the bad impacts on individuals. Like, where are the areas that you're seeing glimmers of hope that this this you know, hey, we can we can we can solve this issue? Yeah, there have been amazing strides. I mean, some of the stuff in the book I cover is about the work of labor unions in the early 2000s and the 2010s pointing to this problem affecting their own union members, oftentimes low-income workers within hospitals who are being sued by those hospitals for debts they cannot pay. Uh, you know, some of the most amazing stuff right now is being folks that, done by folks who really have nothing to do with medicine in their daily lives. I'm, one of the guys who started this group called Dollar Four which is a good group to know about, they help patients apply for hospital financial assistance. Every nonprofit hospital in the United States has to have a financial assistance policy that specifies at what level of income you get free care and discounted care. Mm -hmm. And if you fall below those levels, you're entitled to, entitled to that level of free and discounted care. But those, those applications can be tough to fill out, especially if you're going through an illness. And so this group, $4, does that work for you for free. And that was started by this guy, uh, Jared Walker, who had an experience in his family of medical debt and really made it his mission, uh, even as he was working as a bartender and a trampoline park operator uh, to help to help folks. And it's, a, it's an organization that has really grown by leaps and bounds. What, another one is the, the Debt Collective. I know you've spoken with their members on your podcast. Yeah, I'm a de Debt Collective super fan. And I yeah. think a lot of our listeners are too, yeah. They've done amazing work uh, since Occupy to show what the debt buying industry looks like to relieve people of that medical debt, and then now uh, really to push for a broader change by bringing debtors together in a union to show that you know this really isn't a system that should be allowed to persist, uh, and that the ultimate you know answer for it is to uh, eliminate medical debt and bring on a single payer healthcare system. 
All right. So I'm wondering if you can tell us about your book, which I'm like, so, I'm so excited for this book, honestly. Um, and I'm, I'm hoping that there's one of my favorite things to do is, is tease my sister with random medical jargon to act like I know what I'm talking about. So I hope there's some nuggets I can use in that to make my, my sister troll game stronger. But can you, can you talk about your, your upcoming book, your money or your life? I'm really excited for it. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I, I used to be a history PhD student. I did a, a medical degree and a PhD, and so I was in school forever. But uh, during that time, I was really focused on uh, the history of colonial medicine. I was working on um, on Southern Africa and Malawi in particular. Uh, and in doing that work, I, I came across this problem called uh, hospital detention, where in some countries, patients who can't pay for their care are, are literally detained in the hospital. Oh, wow. uh, Margaret Atwood talks about this in an uh, essay on debt, where she says that her own mother went through this in Canada before they passed their single payer healthcare system. So this is like a this is a, a widespread problem that still exists today. And I, you know, I thought it was horrific. I wanted to study it. But then I realized that my own hospital was doing something not dissimilar to this in suing patients and garnishing their wages. When I went to the courthouse, I looked it up and saw that my own hospital system where I was training, not where I work now, was going after patients in a really aggressive way. These were folks living on social security disability. These were recent immigrants. These were single mothers. Uh, and it was just, it was just, it's filmed, it filled me with shame and also with curiosity as to how this could possibly happen and why it was so widespread. So I, you know, put on my historian hat and tried to dig into the archives and the records and old trade journals and uh, hanging out with uh, and talking with debt collectors to try to understand what this world was and where it came from. And so the book that came out of it, it's called Your Money or Your Life, Debt Collection in American Medicine. It comes out um, in early November. And I think it relates medicine and debt collection and, and tells the story of how you know, debt collection became such a huge part of people's experience of medicine in the United States in a way that I hope speaks to people who work in medicine or anyone who's ever, you know, coming to contact with it. Uh, it's, it's a tale of some folks who are doing good, folks who are not doing not so good, uh, and, and really what we can do now to, to change it. That's wonderful. We'll uh, have a link to uh, purchase it and learn more about it in our, our show notes for the podcast. Um, Luke, it's been so great to talk to you. This has been super illuminating. I'm, I'm just like, I'm, I'm so glad that there's a person who is working on this exact thing. And it's just so great to meet you and, and, and chat with you. Yeah, so great to meet you too. Really excited uh, about the work you're doing now and have done in the past and really looking forward to working with you in the future. Thanks so much. Thanks. All right. So we're in a time where things like Medicare for All or single-payer health care are not really a pipe dream anymore. I mean, there are recent presidential candidates with platforms on these issues. I think it speaks to just how big of an issue this is in our country. And as usual in our system... The more oppressed, the heavier the financial impact, it seems. It's way worse for black folks due to environmental factors like where we live. And it's way worse for black women. And it's worse for black trans people. And on and on and on. I can see a day where our health care is free. I mean, I live a few miles away from a country where it's close to free. But how do we write the ship on the impact medical debt has had on black people over the last many generations? Well, I think we need to demand that any solution includes reparations for the way black people have gone into debt from medical care. 
And that could mean anything from expanding healthcare services in black neighborhoods to sending more black students to medical school. But that's just one piece of the puzzle. Let's keep having conversations about more. We are spending twice as much per capita on healthcare as do the people of any other country. Maybe it has something to do with the fact that the healthcare industry last year made $100 billion in profit. My thanks again to Angela Peoples and Dr. Luke Messick for joining me this episode. Indebted is produced and published by Convergence, a magazine for radical insights. You can help support this show and others like it by becoming a Patreon member of Convergence for as low as $2 per month at patreon.com slash convergence mag. You can find a direct link in the show notes. The show is produced by Josh Elstrow. It's written and hosted by me, Maurice BP Weeks. Until next time, let's keep fighting for the world we all deserve. Yeah.